Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Racing News Radio Show. Here is your host, Paul Tarsi. In spite of the wind, the rain, the flooding that the UK has been through over the last few weeks, we're all here uh, with another packed program. Joe Bradley, you missed the last program, and uh, yes. and and you slacker. Uh, <laughs> it was a holiday. Oh well, well, we'll we'll soon put a stop to Christ- that. It was Christmas. Are you, uh, are you back now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the off season for what little off season we had this year, um, or these days, I should say. Um, I just could be Q8 finished the year, didn't it? The twelve hours of Q8. We are now in that sort of brief off season. I remember when the off season was October to March, and <laughs> uh, and everybody. September. Uh, some some September, but it used to be October to March when, in fact, the, the Formula Ford Festival was always the last race meeting of the year, and that was usually mid-October. And then nothing would start again until middle to the end of March. That's race when, of be when the, the uh, yes, yeah, Race of Champions, March. Um, but nowadays, it's all year round, isn't it? I mean, I, I know I, we've got to go to the Middle East for our racing, but there's a lot of karting events that go all the way through December, January, February. We've got our own club races beginning immediately, pretty much in February, two months off and then straight into it. But um, I did enjoy the Christmas period. It, it's just nice to have an excuse where you don't have to do anything, which I like doing. I like nothing to do. I like just sitting around and reading books and not having any and, 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 and not needing an excuse to do so and not feeling that you're not being productive. Because, of course, you are productive because I'm doing research for this program. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, honestly, Gov, honestly. <laughs> Jim, um, whilst we've all been suffering at the hands of the British weather, you've been enjoying the weather of a very different kind. I have. I have indeed. I may or may not have been spotted in the Virgin Islands. <laughs> <sighs> and and, uh, and There's an irony in that. <laughs> yes, there is. Yes, there is. If Facebook posts are be, to be believed, uh, yes, I'm just back from enjoying a eight day sailing excursion with dear friends in the, in the Virgin Islands, and I am a bit browner than I was when I left. So, yeah, we had a great right. Christmas. Thank you very much. Is there much. a lot? Is there a lot more of you to be brown as well, Jim? After that holiday? Uh, well, no. <laughs> No, brave, there isn't. Brave. There, there, there isn't, but um, the uh, puffiness of uh, over uh, consumption of alcohol has <laughs> has decreased greatly in the last uh, four days since I've been home. So, <laughs> and your liver's crying. Thank ah, uh, my liver's going. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You came back home. <laughs> Poor George, you. Uh... Have you been spending your time huddled under a blanket or uh, are you raring to go? Uh, the, the blanket thing. I want to know who told, basically. Because <laughs> it's like, you know, when you, when you start off and you're born, you get wrapped up in a blanket and then 
as you get older and older, it suddenly becomes an attractive proposition again, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, especially these days, because you can get heated blankets, which are mm. one of the most amazing inventions in the history of keeping warm. Basically, I hate what, is this, what is this witchcraft you speak of? Oh, don't, yeah. it's well, got you control get, on it. You this has only been around it. since the 60s, Paul. Come on. Oh, I know, but it, they've only entered my life quite recently. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I loathe being cold. I hate being cold. I refuse ever to complain about being too hot in the summer because I think if you do that, you lose the right to complain about winter. So uh, not enjoying myself at the moment. But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, People, a couple of people, Joe spoke about you know the the quiet bit. This is always the bit I find when you're flat out trying to organise your season ahead, isn't it? And certainly that's what I've been up to. So it, looking good already. I've already got a, looks like I've got a trip to Zandvoort confirmed. So back there for this year. Um, commentating at a couple of nice meetings for um, MSVR. So that should be quite good. Get to commentate on the Masters at uh, Brands Hatch. That's going to be quite exciting. So yeah, been been busy basically, just trying to put the next next year ahead, and uh, suddenly we're into the next year, and it all becomes very very real. Do you know you you just said about uh, about your blanket time? That sorry, for... I mentioned all these nice race meetings and all these circuits, but it's the blankets that everyone's oh, latching well, onto. That's, that's <laughs> the modern that's the modern world is how it works, Paul. <laughs> where I'm uh, where I'm going to now is that. Uh, my my dear wife bought me a onesie for Christmas. Yay! <laughs> oh, this we have to. Oh, we have the to huge see. manatees! <laughs> yes. oh, Can we my have pictures, God. please? I said, oh, prepare, yeah. Perfect no, onesies no. a radio. Remember, <laughs> fellas, be careful. Some things you can't unsee. It was I the only person who imagined a teddy tubby at that point? <laughs> oh, wow! Cool. I thought, Joe, Joe, I thought you were brave. That's 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 new level. If it new is level. if it if it is lime green, you are going to be seen from space. You know that, don't you? <laughs> you might get tourists queuing up outside just to see you. Yes, yes. Well, uh, phenomenal. <laughs> I was I was just about to say maybe I'll put a picture on Facebook, but maybe I won't. <laughs> no, 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 no. But you could send it to our WhatsApp group. Yeah, yeah, I, could do, yeah, yeah. I could do that. Yeah. So one of us could accidentally post it to Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Joe. Sorry. So I I imagine that uh, there isn't too much driver coaching going on at this uh, this time of year. So ch- recharge the batteries. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there's there's always ice driving and stuff which you can go and do if you want to out to lovely, lovely parts of the world. But it's kind of like a bit Laplandy, isn't it? Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's all it's all PR for this time of the year for me, which is um, not what you think it is. But it's a prep and research. There you go. I'm you weren't expecting that one, were you? I wasn't. No, no, <laughs> no. A bit like a bit like Paul's just said, though. It is. It is. It's a lot of right sort of getting the 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 diaries together and whatever. And it's all those things when the why, why is it in this industry that we have, you know, as Joseph said about when the when the window is now, it's as, as longer than ever, and you, you all the work you want or offered, if you can have it over the year, that would be great. But of course, you get three things at one weekend and nothing for three months, almost. I exaggerate for clarity, but you know what I mean. It's sort yeah. of like it's juggling. What can I do, and how do you do this? And you know, we've all fallen foul of it sometimes. Of you, know, you think you can commit to something, something changes, and trying to. Do the you know, the diary planner? It's a it, it's a pain, and just want to just want to get to race meetings and talk about cars. That's what we want to do. Drive fast. You know, ice the, ice racing's got a big uh, in in Minnesota and places like that in America. Ice racing's a big deal, not just like mm-hmm. yeah. But did you see that um, the the Andros 
ice racing that they run in in the Alps every year. Um, and they, for the last few years, they've been running them for electric cars, very, very heavily supported by manufacturers. And they have a lot of sort of retired racing drivers of, you know, Formula One drivers, etc. who do So do, 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 we have a, do we have a swear box on HRN? <laughs> but, 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 but they've canned it. They're not doing it anymore because of climate change. And that is amazing. Because there's no ice. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. So wow. It's, now, it's now the Andros, Andros Grass Tracking Championship, is it? <laughs> yeah, no, it might fun. be the Cross Crunchy Swimming Championship. Probably. <laughs> That's very good, yeah. Very no, topical but... with the flooding we've got in the UK, Jim. Well done. You're always, always on point. Always on point. Later in the show, we're going to be joined by Damien Smith, um, who's written a book called... Benetton, the Rebels of Formula One. Uh, and he's going to be telling us a bit about the high spots and perhaps some of the lows too of the, uh, of the of this championship winning team. So we're looking forward to hearing from Damien. My name is Paul Tarsi and between all of us here, um, we're going to try and keep you entertained with a mixture of news and film book reviews opinionated nonsense over the next couple of hours so let's uh, let's make a start um jim the year started badly with losing one of those great sports car drivers who perhaps never became a household name but was nonetheless a significant figure in our sport yeah, I don't want to begin the year with a downer, but unfortunately, as uh, all of us get to be men and women of a certain age, we we tend to realize that our heroes are also getting to be of a certain age. And Herbert Linga was certainly one of mine. He was one of the quiet, unsung heroes that helped Porsche rise uh, from the depths of the post-war Germany to become one of uh, the world's leading car makers. He passed away uh, Friday, January 5th at the age of 95. Linga was born June 11th, 20, uh, 1928. And uh, appropriately enough in Weissach, Germany. He was literally a lifelong Porsche man joining the factory. Uh, he got his first uh, identity work, work card uh, in 1943 during the war at the age of 14. Six years later, he was uh, the first mechanic that uh, Porsche employed when they moved uh, factory operations from Mund to Stuttgart, and that was in the post-war era in 1949. And he was one of the few remaining people who knew and, and actually worked with the family patriarch Ferdinand Porsche. The French army came in to to work in there and repair their, their own cars. And later on, the Americans came in, the Americans, so we, about for one and a half year, we repaired chips in the Porsche company for the U.S. Army. Yeah, we, for, for, for us, it was good because, uh, you know, the, the U.S. Army had a very good uh, food. <laughs> And uh, all the other places, you know, there was a little problem after the war. And uh, so for us, it was fantastic. In November 49, it was only by the Enderator factory. We were only five people. 
Mr. Porsche three engineers and his secretary, and myself. I was the only one in the workshop. Lingo was instrumental in the development of the first Porsche 356 built in Stuttgart, and those early cars were not delivered to customers until Linga had test-driven them, them himself and reported back to Dr. Porsche that each car was fit for delivery. Before I went to the, to, to the service department in, uh, to Switzerland or America, uh, I had to do all the, the, the end tests for all the production cars. On, we made about four or five cars a day. And every night I had to come to Mr. Porsche and tell him what's good in the car, what's wrong. If the car has to go back to the shop, do some some better work. And uh, on earth, when Mr. Porsche said it's okay, the car could be delivered. I, I still have the book where they have the chassis numbers in there, which, which car I have tested and which day. Besides those early cars, Lingus fingerprints can be found on much of Porsche's rich history on and off the racetrack. In 1952, he was sent to America by Ferry Porsche to set up the service network for Porsche customers. During that time, he brought Vasek Pollock to the United States as a young mechanic. Pollock established himself as one of America's leading importers of Porsche and was crucial to Porsche's American racing efforts through the years. He also used that time in the U.S. to make his mark as more than just a development driver, but a real racer. As a co-driving mechanic, he claimed three consecutive Carrera Panamericana victories from 1952 to 1954. And he and the great Hans Hermann took a class win in the first racing outing for the 550 Spider at the 1954 Milimilia. Uh, the win was celebrated in Porsche lore for many years because the two secured the win by ducking down under a closing crossing gate at a railroad as they rocketed across the track. <laughs> then came the 550 in 54. So when the, Mr. Porsche said, we need a mechanic for Heinz Hermann as a co-driver for the Millimilia. We get Linge, so it's a little bonbon for him. He can drive the car, he knows the car. We did about a whole week. We have done uh, practice with a normal Porsche car. So all you have to know is, is it a face corner, what you didn't see, or is it a slow one? And so we marked also the, the railroad crossing, and some of them are really bad. You know, if you are going too hard, you, you took the chance to break something in the car. On this, uh, especially um, railroad crossing was marked in my book as very fast and very good. And I was giving this information to Hans. We used, we had an open car. Of course, the Spider was an open car and sometimes it was complicated. We had no talking or things. So I had uh, markers, red, yellow and green. Yeah. So when I was giving him green, that means flat out. <laughs> so Hans came around the corner and uh, was a very fast one, so 150, 160 kilometers. And uh, just before the railroad, there was a man with a red flag, but he was about 20 meters from the railroad away. 
was much too late to, to break or, or stop or anything. So when the, already the, the barrier was just coming down and uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't see it because I was already waiting for the next corner. Eh? So Hans was hitting me in the head and uh, I somehow I immediately realized there is, there is something going on now. So I took myself and he took the head and then we went under the barrier and lucky guys. <laughs> in 1956, he returned to Germany full time and he began his racing career as a works driver. During a 20 year career, he resulted in some 90 class victories, six international records. But perhaps his two most famous drives in two different disciplines were in 1965, when he and future head of motorsport Peter Falk teamed up for a fifth place finish in the Monte Carlo Rally. To that point, it was the best motorsports outing for the new Porsche 911. And second was his stint at the 1970 Le Mans 24 Hours, when he drove the Porsche 908 camera car for Steve McQueen's epic film Le Mans. McQueen had intended to drive in the race himself. If you recall that year, he had already finished second at the 12 Hours of Sebring. But the insurance company squashed that, and Linga was chosen as McQueen's understudy. The insurance said no. She would not agree he could not drive uh, during the race. And uh, so he came up. He had to ask Mr. Peake if he allowed me to drive the camera car in the 24 hours. And he agreed. And so... I had a chance to drive again at Le Mans after doing about 14 races at Le Mans before. So for the end of my practical career was, uh, was a, good, a good test again. <laughs> time, one time we had uh, in the morning, I think it was 5.30 or somewhere, uh, he wanted me to be exactly in this time under the Dunlop Bridge, because only for a couple of seconds you could see the, the, the sun coming up. And uh, all kinds of uh, such uh, problems <laughs> to follow. It huh? was, was very complicated sometimes, because we, we also had to watch the other drivers, you know, couldn't be in their way, so it was very difficult sometimes. After, the, after they had all this material from the racing, we had about six weeks. We stayed at Le Mans, you know, to make the, the, the picture together. And uh, a lot of driving had to be done with a long tail and with, with, uh, with other cars, which he had in mind what he wants in his film. And uh, the factory had only one 917 long tail left. All the others were already changed and uh, destroyed or whatsoever. So Mr. Peek uh, told uh, Steve McQueen that the only one who will be able or allowed to drive this, the last 917, would be me. So I had to stay there for six weeks, you know, <laughs> to make all the driving with the, with the 917 long tail. His Porsche racing colleagues always marveled at his ability to combine his driving skills, his mechanical, 
mechanical acuity and his development aptitude. He was That was no more on display than when he convinced Ferry Porsche to open the Weissach Development Center in his hometown. Porsche uh, needed, knew he needed a new facility, but he didn't want to build on good farmland. This was, of course, a time when, when Germany was still still recovering from World War II, and Linga convinced Porsche that his hometown of Weissach was where nothing but slows grew. <laughs> <laughs> so construction began in 1961. After his retirement from racing in 1971, he took over running the Weissach uh, Center, and during his 16 years as the Weissach plant manager, Linga used his position to influence safety in motorsports. He convinced the German Motorsports Authority, then called the ONS, to institute the first safety teams with fire extinguishers in the safety cars, and that saved many lives. The first ONS safety cars were Porsche, uh, was a Porsche 914-6 that the factory had used in the 1971 Monte Carlo Rally. The car was dubbed the world's fastest fire engine. After his retirement from Porsche in 1987, as with many Porsche legends, he remained involved as a consultant. He ran the ONS safety team until 1990. And that was when he moved to head up a new Porsche Carrera Cup, considered by many to be the most prestigious uh, one-make championship. He helped found that championship and ran it for many years. He was a true Porsche ambassador right up to his passing, as many people love to hear his stories and anecdotes of this modest Swabian Porsche legend. And one of his favorite stories, Paul, is that when he came to America, his English wasn't very good. And they had a small cadre of German mechanics there. And he was trying to use his English as much as he could. And the German mechanic said, no, 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 you must do the story. You must do the, the school in Swabian. That way we will feel like we are really working for Porsche. And that's a that's a, a, a fun little uh, yeah. linga anecdote. No, that's that's right. And thank you, thank you, Jim, for that. I know that um, he had a, a very special place in the corner of, of your affections, and uh, that. Oh yeah, yeah. He was uh, he, a, he, he was a great guy, and he was also uh, he was very instrumental also in the in the launch helping to launch the career of the great Hans Hermann, and they remain very dear friends all all through their life um especially after that uh adventure in the Mila Milia, i'm sure that they were <laughs> they were bonded forever uh be watching um our youtube page because i'm going to put a full obit with a lot of uh sound from herlinga uh here in the next uh, week or so so i'll let everybody know via the facebook page when that's available Thank you very much indeed, Jim. And I, I mean, it's it's interesting. Several of the things in there struck a struck a chord for me. There's there's the thing of that you have drivers who were racing racing one weekend and then driving in the Monte Carlo Rally another. And we we all know of of the great Vic Elford who mm. who was very successful at, at that. Uh, and that's just the way it was in those days, wasn't it? And talk about how things might have been that that uh, he was he was also down to be the other driver in John Wolfe's Porsche 917 um, at Le Moyne 19, uh, 1969, when of course John Wolfe crashed on the opening lap, and that he'd been uh, he'd been been seconded 
to drive with Wolf, who was not experienced enough to drive that very, very hairy car as it was then. Um, and that Porsche very much wanted Linga to uh, to drive the first stint. And Wolf said, no, I've bought the car. I'm going to race it. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's my we, car. I go first. Yep. Yeah. And of course, it cost him his life. Uh, but mm. it would have been a very different outcome, I think, if uh, Herbert Linga had been out there racing that. But th- thank you. Thank you, Jim. And, and I think it's important that we don't just celebrate the the big names uh, and, and talk about those people. Herbert Linger, as we said, as you said, um, not perhaps um, um, a superstar as we would know some of the other drivers of the 50s and 60s, but uh, but nonetheless a very, very important person in the in the history of, of, of our sport. You're listening to Historic Racing News. Don't forget that you can follow all the news on the Historic Racing News Facebook page. And please remember, if you do that, to take an active part. Don't just read it and move on. But uh, let's have your comments, good or bad, and and like like the posts or comment on the posts, and please follow our page as well. Um, now, there's been an addition to the long list of motorsport films, and you may remember that we we ran a Corridors of Power at the end of last year talking about the greatest motorsport films of all time. And we've now had the arrival of a high-profile movie, um, which is simply called Ferrari. Um, Joe Bradley, you were very keen to get to see this, and uh, what do you think of it? I thought it was beautiful. Um you know how you know how vocal I was on that show where we we did talk about motorsport movies and I think we all we all agreed that these kind of movies are not made for the likes of ourselves, i.e. motorsport aficionados and and, and big enthusiasts. Um and and this movie is you know what? I can forgive all of its historical silliness, let's call it. And I'll give you an example. I can forgive it, all of that, because of the way it was beautifully shot, the relationship dynamic between portrayed by Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz as uh, Enzo Ferrari and his wife, Laura. Um, and and that, that relationship dynamic with, with his mistress and his illegitimate son, Piero Lardi Ferrari, we, we, we all knew that story in any case. But to dramatize it, there's lots of inaccuracies even with the relationship. Um, and it's going to be hard, if you haven't seen the movie, listeners, it's going to be hard for us to talk about this and not offer you any spoilers. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I'll try not to. What I, what I will say is... Um, it, it's such a beautifully shot movie. It's so I'm a I'm a I am a fan of Adam Driver for many things that he's done, um, and I'm certainly a fan of Penelope Cruz. Who wouldn't Who wouldn't be? Um, <laughs> yeah, for all the different reasons. Um, but it's so beautifully shot. I can forgive it. The fact that it portrays the Millie Miglia. I've got to say a, a motor race that I'm not really that much of an expert on. It's not a, an area of motorsport that I've really sort of taken to or looked into. It was more akin to a rally than a than a than a circuit race. So that's perhaps why. Um, but it portrays that as a heat out of the Formula Ford Festival. 
with about seven or eight cars wheel to wheel. And considering the, the cars in the, in the millimeter went off at minute intervals, the rarity of a car coming together is certainly the main protagonist for the overall win coming together on the road was very, very few and far between, if not ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and obviously that, you know, it's very hard to shoot that, um, that, that, you know, there's only there's only certain movies that have achieved that, aren't they? And, and that, I think the film Grand Prix and the movie Le Mans sort of portrayed cars at speed. John Frankenheimer was a genius at it. We talked about that in the last show. But this movie, I'd urge any motorsport fan to see it because, because forgive it, it's portrayal of race cars on the road or the track. Um on seeing that, I thought the early the early scenes of our good friend Marino Franchitti playing um, Castellotti um, in at the test facility at Fiorano, which apparently for the movie was completely rebuilt, or, or they built a model of it. Um, yeah, and the modern uh, no, autodrome you're speaking of. Uh, yes, yes. I yeah. think, isn't that the Fiorano uh, no. facility? It's no, a different... the modern autodrome now is a park. That has actually been named after Ferrari. It's a. It was. It was torn apart. But you are accurate in in that they rebuilt it. Yes. Um, yeah. Right. Fast, and it, and it looked. I've seen. I've seen onboard footage of Fangio at at the Modena uh, circuit uh, test facility, and they've recreated it magnificently. Um, and the, the the soundtrack, the noise of the engines. They've done a cracking job about that. Um, with that. So for me. I'd urge everybody to go and see it. It's more about the relationship dynamic between Enzo Ferrari. Um, I've got to say a man who I know I have a shallow knowledge of. I don't really know any sort of, we all know the, the legend. We all know the, the myth, the mythical sort of ambience and, and around him, you know, people who have gone to meet him with the, in his, in his dark office behind the big, massive, oak wooden desk and all those stories of him wearing shades and stuff. And But there's lots in the movie that I absolutely loved. And I know that you're going to – you're probably going to give me a hard time about that and, and because I've completely done a U-turn on motorsport movies with this one because it's, it's just beautifully, beautifully shot. That that part of Italy as well, they've really done a cracking job of uh, of, of capturing the, the, the kind of Italian culture of the 50s. Um, and I think the other thing that they did a great job in subtly getting across was how Enzo Ferrari was with his drivers insofar as he didn't get emotionally attached to these people. And they do, they do a great job in, in, sort of, uh, in sort of portraying that with the Castellotti death. And then he turns around and he basically hires Portago basically at the track side, the very, as, as they're clearing the body of Castellotti up, sorry for the spoiler, um, that sort of thing. And I think, all right, that, that was probably historically inaccurate, but um, it's a way of getting that message across that, that how Ferrari was like. And I think I've heard story or read stories that the only driver that he became emotionally attached to was Gilles Villeneuve after all those I've- years. I've heard that, yeah, mm. yeah. As, yeah. As, as anyone, as anyone would, <laughs> I, I, I would argue Peter Collins. Peter Collins virtually lived with him, yeah, Did he? and it was partly yeah. the death of Collins that he moved, he stepped away even more from the drivers right. for many, many years. Yeah, yeah, but uh, no, thank, thank you for for that overview. Has anyone Joe? else seen it? By the way, 
Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I yes. know that I know that Snowy has. And um, what what were your your thoughts, Snowy? Um, well, I'm, I'm just I'm overwhelmed by uh, this new Joe Bradley. The, overwhelmed. The, um, <laughs> the, um, the, the the new film critic. It's quite extraordinary. Um, I'm, I'm just glad I was sitting down. So, uh, whoever's uh, the imposter that's playing Joe Bradley this this week. If you'd like to just step out and get Joe back, that would be great. Um, <laughs> no, I thought it's, uh, I, I tend to agree a lot of it. Uh, he and I have disagreed a lot on, on motor racing films over the years. It's Hollywood. It's like James Bond. It's not realistic. It's entertainment. Um, I thought, I can only agree with Joe, beautifully shot. Uh, just that, the Catalotti bit just there very quickly. If the, Mr. Franchetti didn't die, mostly Catalotti did in the film. But the point was that Patago had just presented himself to Enzo Ferrari at Modena and said, I want to drive for you. And he'd said, I have no need for a driver, thank you. And a lap later, Catalotti's killed. And I'm thinking, thinking, you do now. And exactly that. He turned to him as Joe said, right, you start here. No actresses because they just trap for my cars, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, whether it actually happened or not, it was, we all know uh, the view on that, how it had it been. I think it was beautifully shot. The scenes were just um, quite stunning. I love the historical drama side of it of, um, the the power play between um, Enzo Ferrari and Lara uh, that she held the freehold to this and that and you know <laughs> bankrolled the company and went to the bank or didn't and kept it all going for that a bit wasn't true though, was it that bit wasn't well, true well it doesn't matter whether it's true uh, part, but let's not do a whole part of it was it's, it's, some of it's it was embellished made. but yes exactly, exactly. well it's Hollywood so I, I love I love that um, and it, it goes back to that thing. There's a great, there's a great line in the film where, and I think this is an Enzo Ferrari quote where he talks about Jaguar races to sell cars. I sell cars to race. Yep. <laughs> uh, oh, which, is just, which is just so good. Which, which was, you know, you know, commercially, I mean, Paul, you'd have been tearing his hair out because you, know, you wouldn't have supported Ferrari and invested in it at all because he was, he was a nutter. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't commercially viable at all. Uh, I thought the absolute star of the show was Penelope Cruz. Actually, outstanding. Um, a couple of views and papers in the UK have said that you know, she had a minor part. I totally disagree. I think she was a major, major part in it. It was key. Um, brilliant film, spoiled by some of the most dire racing scenes I've ever seen in decades. Ooh. Absolutely ridiculous. Ooh. Hollywood's yeah. love affair with anything to do with racing, we must speed it up. And, right. and dummies in cars, please. It's the it, 21st century. It was that sped up. Bits of it sort of, yeah, the so-called millimetre coming down the hill. And Joe, your point, by the way, of cars going a minute apart. Don't forget that when the millimetre did run, they started the smaller class, lower capacity cars first. Mm. So car, so the, the Ferraris and Mercs and stuff, or the, you know, the leading cars would come through the field. But you say side by side, probably not a minute apart, although easy to lose a minute on somewhere like that. Um, and I think I think the best thing I could take take away from it all was that Patrick Dempsey finally got to win a race. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> that is, that's the, the quote of the quote, quote of the show so far. Yeah, I think I think you missed your Hollywood opportunity because they wouldn't have had to dye your hair to be true. <laughs> oh, still love you, still love you. <laughs> Thanks, Snowy. And um, and Jim, what what were your thoughts when you when you watched it? Well, I wanted to dislike it, much like um, you know, much like Joe. I mean, this for Michael Mann, this was uh, a make good for that horrendous Ford versus Ferrari, where he was the executive producer, and everybody thought it was great because the great action film guy was gonna 
was going to be involved and it was a big dud. But um, I thought that Penelope Cruz stole the movie. I thought uh, I've never been a big fan of Adam Driver for, you know, very subjective. I mean, who gives a shit about my opinion? But I thought he was outstanding as as Ferrari. Um, there was some there was some Hollywood license. They did get in the other the other great quote. Um, it is our our terrible passion. Uh, uh, our deadly passion, our terrible joy. That was, uh, that was in there. Um, there were some, some embellishments, the whole Portago thing. He had actually been employed, uh, by Ferrari for about a year before Castellotti's death, but he was a real bit player and, 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 and Ferrari kept him kind of at arm's length until, uh, Castellotti's death. And then he, he needed him. Um, Still finished I, second in the British Grand Prix, though, didn't he? I, indeed. Um, yeah, so he, he wasn't. It wasn't exactly a journeyman. I think that that was something. No, no, no. He was. He, no, he no, no. He was. He was the, not. The, and, they made and, him sound like he was desperate to get a driver. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, again, well, that's, that's well, that just, wasn't. No, not well, a, yeah, not, yeah. Not at all. And the fact that he had, you know, that he had uh, competed in bobsled in the in in the Olympics, you know, Ferrari said, well, if he gets hurt, he'll never drive for me again. You know, and it was just there there was more to that whole relationship than 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 was portrayed in the movie and like you said accurately he was not as desperate as as they made him seem um after after watching the film i wondered about some of the facts and there's a great youtube video with uh piero ferrari where he talks uh they they fire a bunch of uh, a list of questions at him you know did this really happen did that really happen um there, there, there were some unbelievable accuracies and attention to detail in the film that I really liked. Um, the wallpaper in the, Lada's uh, bedroom was an exact copy of the of the silk wallpaper that was actually in her bedroom. Wow. She was a, a woman who who really, really never got over the death of Dino. And, um, you know, it was, uh, the, the fact that, you know, Ferrari's second family with, with, with Piero, that, that came out after, uh, the 57 race, much, much like, uh, like, the, like the movie portrayed, um, the, the cars themselves, uh, unlike Grand Prix where they took formula two cars and turned them into formula one cars, many of these cars were actually hand-built replicas uh, for the film. So they were very accurate in, in their details. They were only um, they were tube frame, though, Jim, with, with yeah, fiber bodies. Yeah, I, I get that. But when you looked at them, they were very accurate. Oh, they were great. Yeah, yeah, they were very good. That, that's what I'm talking They've about. They've got terrible I mean, and, rear ride height and track, though. They look ridiculous. Well, that's <laughs> what the cars looked like back then. No, they didn't. No, 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 not like that. Well... Uh, you know, okay. Um, uh, if you want to quibble about that, that's fine, but, um, that's not worth quibbling about overall. No, exactly. Wow. Exactly. You two have changed. Are you sure these, this is Jim Roller and Joe Bradley. I'm on the right call, aren't I? Yeah. But, but I never complained about the ride heights of the Ferraris in the Ford versus Ferrari <laughs> film. I mean, it was just, you know, come that's on. That's because it was a great film. No, it was not. God, no, um, <laughs> there, there was some technology that was invented for this film. Um, they took a, uh, they, they obviously used drones, um, but, uh, they had a Porsche Cayenne turbo 
that had uh, was they could fit a a, a a boom on the on the roof of the car to get shots, but that limited the car to about seventy miles an hour. So they rigged uh, front and rear camera mounts for the car that would allow them to uh, truck the camera up, meaning, you know, start low in the car and move it up while at speed. And the camera operator ran the, ran the camera from the passenger seat of the, of the Cayenne. They could do that front and back. And there was a, a thing they called the biscuit. And it was a hand-built um, camera car. And anybody that's familiar with movies, camera cars are um, cars that are built to much like the, that Cayenne. Well, this camera car, you actually put the camera, the, the car up on the flatbed of the camera car. And then the camera car was designed. It was uh, 650 horsepower and it was capable of 150 miles per hour. Oh, so mm. um the Bob Nagel, there's again, there's another great uh, YouTube video that you could go look at where they interview Bob Nagel, who is the stunt coordinator, and he goes into into a lot of that stuff. So um, it was it was very interesting the the lengths that they went to for 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 some of the authenticity uh, and and despite the you know it's just like um, one of the executive producers of the movie was was. Um, uh Pam Yates and Pam is the is the the wife of Brock Yates who wrote the book that this was uh this book this movie was based on and Brock Yates's book Ferrari uh the man the machines I can't remember the the whole title was the seminal Ferrari book um so they they had a good foundation to to begin the story and um you know I, I and Again, who, who, as Peter says, who am I? I think some of Peter's criticisms of the um, of the racing scenes are are, are accurate. Um, you know, they didn't race side by side like that in this event. If you caught somebody, you normally you caught them because you were so much faster. You went right on by them, and this is you know this this was the Hollywood thing. Um, Piero uh, Ferrari you know, admitted in his interview that he never asked for Pertago's autograph. He says, it's not something kids did back then. He said, but he himself thought that was, it was, it was a bit of Hollywood, mm. but it was, he thought it was kind of cool. Um, that's, you know, that's good. That's good. So there's, <laughs> yeah. So there's, I, I was really, uh, again, I, I was expecting another Ford versus Ferrari and I was tickled to death and, and, uh, my wife, Betty, really enjoyed the film. So, uh, you know, and I was asking her in the car on the way home, what'd you think? And she says, well, you know, and I says, well, you're the audience. Yeah. She's yeah. I'm not the audience for this film. You are. What'd you think? Yeah. So I loved it. So. No, you Betty, know what, Jim? I, you know what, Jim? I think, I think Betty is the audience for that movie because that movie was about people, not cars. It yeah, was it's, about, it's, it was uh, about, it's, it's actually, you know, the, you didn't go to watch Titanic if you were an expert in maritime engineering. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> but, if you're a dive specialist, however, great film. <laughs> PJ, did you, uh, did, as what you've heard in the last few minutes, 
prompted you to want to go and see it? <laughs> well, there's always that, that's the dilemma, isn't it? Do, do you do you watch it at the cinema or wait till you can either stream it at home or? Oh no, no we you just, have to see talk, this one in the We just cinema. told you all about the it. Cinematography PJ. is fantastic, man. It is. You, this is, is not a small screen yeah, film. This I is... know, but if I'm in a cinema, I can't pause it to explain to Emily what they've got wrong. <laughs> Or they, they haven't got enough wrong in this thing that you'll have to do that. They shouldn't be talking in the cinema anyway. Thank and you I very can't much, stand Pete. up and point at the screen and say, it's Marino. I know him. <laughs> you <laughs> can't tell. But I, I lo- I hey, love I'll him. tell you something, you, Paul. You, you never I'll, I'll see enough it. of his face to know it's him. Yeah, you know what? I've, I've actually, I don't know if you guys know this, but I, see, I saw this movie twice Yeah, over the holidays. And the first time I saw it, I didn't, realize it was marino franchitti until i mean the the scene that he's in it opens with him in bed lying beside this beautiful woman and i didn't see him <laughs> and you can clearly see his face the second time i saw the movie i saw it was him but the reason i didn't recognize him is because you've got a full head of hair as, okay, as, Cast- as castellotti yes i did see it was him when he pulled up in the car and and delivered a line but prior to that, it wasn't until the second time I saw it that I actually realised it was Marino. And I thought I thought Ben Collins was outstanding as Sterling Moss <laughs> for the 30-second bit he had. Gents, thanks very much indeed for that. And uh, I'm I'm the I'm the only other person besides PJ in the group that hasn't seen it yet. So I think you've you've sold it to me. Going, going sold. Time for news from the auction block. Now, Jim, um, as we move into 2024, now's a good time to take a, a, a look back over the last 12 months at the auction scene. Uh, it seems to depend on who you talk to and at which end of the market they live as to whether 2023 has been a good year or not. Well, it's not dissimilar to the current state of American politics, depending on where you get your news source from, the economy's flying high or it's in the tank and we're near depression and people are jumping off buildings. But um, the, the truth be told, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, 2023 for some folks was, was a banner year. Um, it certainly was in the auction market. If you go by the numbers, because uh, despite people's opinions, the, some, some of these numbers don't lie. Um, I, I've, I've done a bit of research and, and, I, and I can go over here some of the, some of the top houses. Uh, of course, we'll start with Bonhams. Uh, they realized uh, over 209 million pounds in sales. That's uh, about $270 million. That's a 34% growth over 2022. That's pretty good. Yeah. I don't think there's any industry in the world that that, that wouldn't take that. Um, but remember, we're still 2023 is the first full year where we're kind of out of the blase of COVID and 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 that sort of stuff. So so some of the number growth, uh, if you if you look at it, 34 percent growth over 2022. Well, what was it over 2019? Perhaps you know before COVID. Um, I didn't. I just thought of that. I didn't look that up. I wish I had. Um, the big seller for Bonhams was, uh, as is usual, is the annual quail auction during Monterey Car Week. Uh, they sold a 1967 Ferrari uh, 412P Berlinetta, that 
beautiful prototype, uh, $30.25 million, making it the fifth most expensive Ferrari ever sold. Uh, Bonhams broke some records with some Porsches as well. They moved the most expensive Porsche 906 in, in history, a 1966 Carrera 6 Coupe, uh, over $2 million for that. And then in a private sale, uh, this one I believe was at auction, and then it didn't move, and then it moved to a private sale. And that was that uh, beautiful 1973 Martini Works Carrera RSR R7. Well, it eventually sold for just under $4 million, and that makes it the highest-selling 911 derivative ever. Uh, again, that was in a private sale. Uh, Bonhams uh, had the on-the-grid auction at Abu Dhabi. There was a lot of news about that as as the, the Formula One season was coming to a close. Um, the event boasted the, the highest uh, price tag at the time, of the year uh, when Kimi Raikkonen's uh, McLaren MP4 21 sold for uh, $2.76 million. Um, that was later eclipsed. I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Gooding and company uh, also had a strong 2023. They realized $194 million in sales. And, and I thought this was interesting. They had a 93% sell through rate. Mm. That's, that, that's pretty good. Um, they sold uh, 902 cars, 44 of those brought over a million dollars. And the average price for a car that, from Goodings in 2023 was just under $500,000 per car. Uh, their top seller was uh, uh, another Ferrari. This was a 1962 uh, 250 GT short wheelbase California Spider. It garnered just over $18 million. And that one was at Amelia Island. Uh, it was a good year in the brass category. Uh, they set some records at Pebble Beach, uh, a 1912 Simplex 50 horsepower toy tonneau uh, sold for just over $4 million. But the thing I thought was so cool, after 111 years of single family ownership. Uh, yes. And yes. that uh, the record setter, though, was a 1914 Mercer Type 35J raceabout selling for uh, just under $5 million. And that's kind of the highest ever for uh, uh, for a brass, brass era car. Uh, all in all, Gooding and company broke sales records in 13 different make and model specific categories in 2023. Now, for big money sales, RM Salisbury's is, is, is normally the benchmark. They were again in 2023. Besides their regular slate of auctions, the, the, most of their big news was in special events. And, and none was bigger than the one auction. This was a single car sold in New York at a special gala, invitation only, was a 1962 Ferrari 330 LM GTO 250 by Scaglietti. I find it interesting that a lot of these record setters were actually race cars, which yeah, yeah. which is 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 a bit of a change. Um, but this one sold one car, one auction, across the block, 51.7 million dollars. It's the second. Uh, uh, it, beca- it became the the most. Uh, valuable Ferrari ever sold and the uh, uh, 
second most expensive car to ever be sold at auction. 51.7 million. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yep. Uh, the other headline maker, uh, uh, frankly, still had some folks shaking their heads was the barn find lost and found collection. And we touched on this in, uh, uh, in the fall when this happened, it was at Monterey car week. Um, they had a selection of cars that were literally sold as is they were, they were barn finds with all the dust and patina. But the big newsmaker was the 1954 Ferrari 500 Mondial Spider by Pininfarina. It was the second Mondial ever built. It crossed the block in unique condition because it was basically a stack of parts on a pallet. Uh, it had suffered a racing crash and severe fire damage. It was offered as found. Uh, any guesses for how much that went for? Go on, tell us. Genuine? Anyone? $1,875,000 for a bag of parts. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was not pretty, was it? it wasn't no, pretty. no. It, it was literally the, the, the picture that they had on the website was the, the bodywork and some tires and some some chassis pieces and the, the frame and stuff literally on a pallet. Uh, that was part of $16.5 million in sales uh, from that division of the uh, that as is division of the auction. I told you earlier about the, the Formula One sale uh, that uh, Gooding had. Not to be outdone, uh, Susby's had a Viva Las Vegas auction as part of the Las Vegas Grand Prix and Lewis Hamilton's first ever winning Mercedes, the 2013 F1 W04, topped $18.8 million dollars uh, making it the uh, highest-selling modern Formula One car uh, ever ever sold. Uh, there was a bittersweet moment for Susby's in 2023. Uh, at its 24th annual event at Amelia Island Concours, it was announced it would be their last at that event. Uh, they went out with a bang, though. They broke their own one-day sales record, closing at over 700. Uh, I'm sorry, 70 million dollars. Added an extra zero there. Thinking about Shohei Otani, um, closing at seventy million dollars in sales. Uh, the event was kickstarted with a special tribute auction that raised over one point two million dollars for the Spina Bifida Foundation of Jacksonville, the charity that was long supported by uh, a friend of the show and Amelia Concord founder uh, Bill Warner and his lovely wife Jane. Uh, they were on hand for that, and one point five million dollar, one point two million dollars went straight to the. Spina Bifida folks from from Susby. So congratulations to them for that. Yeah. yeah. Broad Arrow Auctions uh, uh, also posted some uh, impressive numbers uh, in the year. Uh, it's a, a division of the Haggerty conglomerate, and they are supplanting uh, Susby's at the uh, Concord in the future years. Um, they had... Uh, 334 lots moved uh, in three events, uh, $108 million in sales. Uh, they had 49 private sales as well that garnered uh, $34 million in receipts. Um, their biggest event uh, was the Monterey Jet Center auction, and that brought home $57 million in sales, uh, an 84% sell-through rate. It was the second best rate uh, of Monterey Car Week, 
So uh, congratulations to them on a, on a great uh, year uh, as they are finding, getting their feet under them as a new division of the Haggerty Motoring Conglomerate. Through published records and some of my own estimates, um, because uh, some people don't publish them as, uh, as, as, as a full estimate, you have to go back through and, and just kind of with a piece of paper and pencil and do, do the math. Uh, we're looking at over three quarters of a billion dollars in automobile sales through auction houses in, in 2023. So I would say the market's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I, I suppose part of it though, is that it is a finite supply, isn't it? That, um, you know, if, if you're, if you're selling new cars, if you're selling whatever it might be, then, if it's very popular, you just make more of them. But with with cars at this level that are coming to auction, they are, you know, you, you can't go and make another 312P Ferrari simply because you think, well, yeah, I could probably get a few million for that as well. But it doesn't work that way. And and I'm I'm intrigued as to how people are are managing that. I'm also very interested, Jim, to to hear what you were saying about Hamilton's Mercedes, that that's serious money and that people have been saying for quite a long time now that modern, very modern Formula One cars are never going to sell into the private market because they are impossible to run. Do, do you think, does anybody think that that this is ever going to run again or is it going to be stuck to somebody's dining room wall or is it you know is it going to be going to be something like that what why do people buy that um i am I'm, I'm not sure I, I i would certainly open it up to the to the other guys i think that that we have the similar problem with the sports cars because they are so so computer controlled and it takes so many engineers just to run them and get them ready to run I don't think there'll ever not be a market for certain for certain people. You know, there will be those people that have got, you know, what, what do you get the man that has everything? Yeah. Lewis Hamilton's, uh, yeah. Lewis Hamilton's, Lewis Hamilton's race cars. I think the big question is whether they will ever, ever see the, uh, see the light of day at a, at a racetrack. They, they may. Uh, Mercedes, uh, Ferrari, Porsche all have divisions that will help you with your classic cars. And I wonder if if those divisions yeah. will then help with some technical support for, for these kind of cars. But I also think there is still room in the market for growth because we're seeing – we commented on it earlier in the year, and it comes to mind again now with your question, in that things like there are certain models of BMW that – we haven't really seen an auction and all of us, all of a sudden, you, you know, they're, they're garnering prices with one and two digits to the left of the second comma. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's starting to, to, to grow in, in other and, and, and different areas. So um, I, I think, I, I think, I think, ahead, major, the, yeah, the, the, the thing on that, uh, on the Mercedes, what was it? A W04, wasn't it? About yes. Hamilton. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think the appeal is, Fairly simple, although the 15 points on the other million is slightly more um, I'll have to go down the back of the sofa for that bit. But um, I can see the appeal because it's, it's isn't that the first 
his first year with them and the first, or the first one it he won. It was his with? first victory. It was his first, first victory, exactly. It was so, okay. the car that he won his first race with, sure. Yeah. That'd be Hungaro Ring then, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, because it was a pole. So, I, I can see that appeal. As to using them again, that's the, um, that's, that's a, it's a, it's a can of worms, that one, isn't it? Um, I mean, yeah. it'd be great to see these cars out. Um, you know, I, I was at Ferrari Passioni at Silverton in um, September uh, last year, and you know there were there were various <clears throat> F1 cars going around. Some of the, you know, sort of um, Alonso's, Raikkonen, that sort of era of car. Um, but the one that uh, stole the show completely uh, was the uh, the 1997 car of Schumacher's, with the, you know with a, a noisy V10 and. Yeah, it looks so little, and of course we all know who owns that, don't we? Races, no. races at Le Mans as well. Jill be straight in there. Francois no. Perodo. Oh right, okay. Oh yeah. sure, okay. Yeah, it's his car. Um, but he had he had some of the Ferrari test drivers drive it. He drove it, and it did some demo laps. But that was the car that everybody flocked to go and see. Everybody wanted to see that car, and it was and hear um, it. The, the, and here, it, but the, you know, the others were V10s and stuff as well that you can still run them off laptops. Although the the process, I have to say, the the amount of tires they had to do demonstration runs over three days was just phenomenal. I mean, it's yeah, it, it could have paid my mortgage for twenty five yeah, years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Weekend it, tires. Interesting yeah. point, though. You're quite right, Peter, about running them off laptops, and that actually is one of the problems with these cars that they are high tech cars, but they are fixed in time in high tech. No, there are I, there are people who are out there hunting down old laptops with Windows three point one. There are well, that, there that, that are goes to the store. Stockpiled, stockpiled those. Right, joking, joking them apart. online. Yeah, and they yeah. will sell you those laptops. So there's a little cottage industry in old yeah. computer technology, specifically specifically based on selling to people who buy these cars. That's why I was talking to the That's um, forethought. Uh, yeah, the yes. uh, the engineers that run the classic Williams team, um, and they they've got the FW fourteen B of you know Mansell era ninety one ninety two car, and what is the limitation on running that car? They've got Go on. one laptop that can start it with, and if that laptop dies currently, they cannot start that car or run the fully active suspension. Wow! But you see, I, I mean, yeah. I've, I'm I'm a, I'm a comp- now, nothing's impossible, but. Currently, it's one laptop. Yeah, I, I'm a complete luddite when it comes to technology, as you all know. But 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 it's this is not breaking news. <laughs> but uh, I've told you the story of Zach Brown's um, Senna Lotus, haven't I? And my mid Gary Robertshaw when he first went to United Autosports, and there in Mister Bra- United Autosports, it's where they house some of Zach Brown's collection of cars. And one of them was the Estoril Grand Prix winning Senna, Senna winning Lotus, um, the first Grand Prix that Senna won. Eighty five car, yeah. 1985 Portuguese Grand Prix. And it was basically a paperweight. And the reason it was a paperweight is because they couldn't get a laptop to speak to it. And Robert Shaw, who's a bit of a, um, he's not just a world endurance champion engineer or a Le Mans winning champion engineer in LMP2. He's also a bit of a whiz with computers. He said, I'll have a look at it. And he got the thing to talk to a computer and, and he got the thing fired up. And that car instantly became worth God knows what. Yes. Just because Gary had the com- computer news to, to give it a go. He's a bit of a geek. Always was. But that's, he's, that's and, he's, and he's worked for Zach Brown ever since. 
Street Imagine that. Career <laughs> <laughs> move. Funny, funny that. <laughs> just, just a final point, though. We spoke about a Hamilton car had been sold. I'm not going to name names here, but I worked with a Formula One world champion for a while who, through a front, through somebody else, was quietly buying back his cars, cars that he had raced. And he actually got three of them before the market figured out that someone was buying cars driven by that person and the prices all went up. So quite often there's a front, you know, the person buying the car may not be the person, you know, for all we know, it's ended up back with Hamilton. Mm -hmm. That's that's true. There's a great, there's a great true story of, of Ron Dennis being absolutely snookered because he said he would, you know, he had certain criteria uh, for, selling McLarens and he wouldn't sell them individually. You know, if you were going to buy them, you had to buy a group of them. So a group of rich guys got together and formed a consortium and sent one representative to buy, I think it was five or six cars. And then when they, when they got them in their possession, they split them up and he was outraged that, you know, I can, I can tell you another little, um, little story there on Ron Dennis being outraged very quickly with your, your Zach Brown thing, uh, Joe, that, um, uh, as you know, Ron Dennis was, was a mechanic back in his day and still apparently liked to service fiddle, quote, whatever terms you want to use with his own cars. Had a classic Aston uh, back in very early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, DB6 Volante, I think it was, and had serviced this car and then couldn't get it to start. Yeah. So story goes that he phoned, and I have this on very good authority, he phoned R.S. Williams in London, uh, UK, said, please, can you um, just come and service this car? It's out in Monaco. Come and service this car, and, um, or certainly in France, and give it an English MOT. And it was explained to him that they no longer provided that service. And um, he said, no, this, this is Ron Dennis. You don't understand. This is what I want. And it was proclaimed, again, that this was not a service they provided any longer. So it ended up, ultimately, with Ron Dennis and R.S. Williams himself speaking directly. And um, apparently Ron Dennis' way of negotiating was, if I offered you a million pounds to come and do it, would you? To which there was a suitable pause before Richard Williams was able to say anything. It was said, in which case, we are now negotiating. So what's the price? Okay. <laughs> so that was one side of it. But the reason the car wouldn't start was when, said R.S. Williams mechanics went out there, was... That they discovered the distributor was 180 degrees out. Yeah, we've all done it. We've all done that. Well, no, no, it gets better because Ron <laughs> flat refused to believe this uh, and knew exactly how to do it. And then realised the preceding weekend he'd had at his he had a house party where his guests had been one or two his drivers A Senna and G Berger, and Berger thought it would be really funny with him and Senna to go and get spanners and turn the distributor around and mess with Rossi's the boss's head. That's exactly what he'd done. What I've been told is Berger and Senna wouldn't know how to hold a spanner. No, I don't believe that. I I think think Berger knew what to do. Before we we move on, there is just one other thing I'd like to say about uh, Ron Dennis. Many, many congratulations to Ron Dennis, who is now Sir Ron Dennis. Yes, indeed. And I am delighted to have read that, that he was made a knight in the New Year's honours. Um, way overdue, and uh, and that I'm really, really pleased to see it. So, congratulations to Ron Dennis for that. So, and, and Christian Christian Honor was honoured as well, wasn't he? With a he was MBE, was, was, right? Was it an MBE or a CBE? I can't remember. 
Yeah, well, again, well well deserved for what he's achieved. In oh goodness, football. yes, yes. So, I mean, he, you know, the, he gets he but gets. These guys still put their pants on one leg at a time, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the great achievement. Okay. Though, Just want to make sure. Yeah. yeah, careful not to deify them. Yeah, right. They're doing, now, their, they're doing their job. Moving on, um, Damien Smith <laughs> has been writing about cars and racing for many years. And just before Christmas, Evro Publishing brought out uh, his book about the famous, or should I say infamous, Benetton Formula One team. Damien, thank you for joining us on the Historic Racing News radio show. You've come to talk about this fabulous new book about the groundbreaking Formula One team, which is Benetton, and you've called it Benetton Rebels of Formula One. The book covers the team from the very earliest days. But the first thing I want to know is just who was the overall driving force behind the team at at Benetton? Was it the Benetton family? Was it Ross Braun, Pat Simmons, Pat Fry, Flavio Briatore, Tom Walkinshaw, or even Michael Schumacher? Who was it? Well, Paul, um, firstly, thank you for having me on. It's it's a pleasure to to join you today. Um, And it's a very good question you ask. the, the, I'm afraid that the short answer is there's there's not uh, there isn't a short answer is is <laughs> um, uh, I think it depends on which perspective you look at. But when I was researching the book and doing the interviews and then coming to write the book, um, the running theme up until um, just after the Schumacher era basically was Rory Byrne, actually the the chief designer, um, and mm-hmm. I would say. He's probably the heart of the Benetton story, really. Um, uh, lots of other people uh, were key to it, um, which we can talk about. But Rory Byrne was the inspiration from a technical perspective. Everyone who worked at the team throughout the 80s and into the 90s um, loved him. Um, they were inspired by him. Uh, he was absolutely not the finished article as a designer when he started in fact he was you know he admitted he was learning on the job and he made lots of mistakes those early tolmans that he designed um you know didn't work very well um Mm. but he was and he was also completely dedicated to finding performance uh, sometimes to the detriment of reliability which was a benetton problem in the 80s um but by the 90s, and particularly after the John Barnard short era that I cover in the book, um, Rory Byrne was um, a central part of that team, and he he designed the cars that um, took Michael Schumacher to the first of his two, you know, his two, his two, two, his two championships. So, um, yeah, I would say it's a really good question, and it's not a straight answer, but I would say Rory Byrne. If I had to. That's a really interesting one, Damien, because uh, it's it's not the one that I would have thought of. But but Benetton was a sponsor long before it became a constructor, wasn't it? Yeah, it was interesting that they they came really from the left field, and <clears throat> um, the rebel theme that I, I chose um, kind of runs through the whole story because the the company was founded in the in the uh, the mid sixties by four siblings. Um, um, one of whom, um, Alessandro Benetton, um, sorry, Lu- Luciano Benetton, um, <clears throat> his son was Alessandro. Luciano um, was the kind of entrepreneur. He was the driving force behind the company. And they had this incredible story in fashion um, coming from a, a small family concern that kind of um, did things very much their own way. Um, 
they had revolutionary ideas about um, uh, producing garments. So um, uh, in terms of T-shirts and, and, and pullovers, and that's what they were famous for. Um, and when they came into Formula One in the 80s, they were trying to expand internationally. And it was kind of, there was no real sort of connection to motorsport, no real love for the sport, as far as I can tell. Um, and I managed to interview Alessandro, the son of Luciano, and he was really interesting um, to sort of telling me that um, it was just kind of circumstance that brought them into that sphere. And they, they ended up sponsoring Tyrrell in 1983, but just for a season. And that I think that deal, if that had continued beyond 83, it could have given Tyrrell some much needed um, stability. Uh, what was obviously a very difficult time for the team uh, as it was starting to de- decline. Um, and instead, they took another direction. They sponsored Alfa Romeo. Then they were sort of linked up with with Tolman, but it was much more than that. It was actually a, a decision to buy the team and become a um, become an owner, um, which which was really not an obvious decision to make in many ways. No, in, in, certainly it was a, a surprise at the time, if if my memory serves me well, which it very rarely does. Um, but Benetton, as you say, grew out of Tolman. Um, and that Tolman was, yeah, that they were the white boys of Formula One long before Benetton came on the scene. Yeah, and that's why the... Um... I hate that word synergy. It's a modern word people like to use, but it, there is some synergy between uh, Benetton, the company, and Tolman in, in terms of their approach. Um, both came from the outside. You know, Tolman was a, a transportation company um, you know, run by uh, Ted Tolman and Bob Tolman. Bob Tolman was, was sadly killed at Sneston in 1976 racing. Um, but Alex Hawkridge was their uh, thrusting young um, managing director, and he was kind of really the the driving force behind the Formula One team. Um, And he came in, they they had success in Formula Two, and they decided to go into Formula One in 1981, very much on their own terms. And the easy way of doing it would have been a a Cosworth DFE um, and and to build a a, a standard chassis and uh, on Goodyear uh, Goodyear tyres or or, or Michelin maybe. Um, Instead, they came in with a, um, a Brian Hart turbo, on Pirelli tyres, and um, they refused to, to play the game to, to Bernie Eccleston's rules. <clears throat> Despite being a British team, they weren't a member of FOCA. They were they were very much aligned with the the turbo um, manufacturer brigades, the you know the, the Renaults and Ferraris, and um, yeah. on that side of things. Um, so uh, they and they ruffled feathers. Hawkridge was a, was a very much a divisive character. Um, so. Uh, yeah, these two edgy companies, Benetton obviously is best known really for its advertising campaigns um, and, you know, trying to um, prod um, taboo subjects such as mm. um, AIDS and race and religion, um, these huge subjects that at the time no one had really done in, in, in advertising. And, um, you know, they, I, I remember, that's how I remember them. Um, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up in the 80s. And uh, Benetton to me, that's what Benetton meant to me before they they became a, a Formula One team owner, so yeah, it was a, it was an interesting um, marriage that that came about completely by chance, but it kind of worked. And those early eighty six, eighty seven sort of times, um, Benetton spent a lot of money, but it it wasn't an instant success, was it? It wasn't, um, but they were always knocking on the door of competitiveness. You know, if they came out of Tolman. Tolman left them in very good shape. Um, because um, 
you know, eighty four, obviously with Ayrton Senna, they'd been um, they was they were right on the on the pace, and it was only really um, having inferior Michelin tyres that um, held them back, and it was because McLaren didn't want them to have the same tyres as them. And every time they did get um, uh, uh, competitive tyres at Monaco in the wet, there's only one one compound of wet tyre. Senna was right on the pace, and at the end of the season um, in, in Estoril, he was on the um, he was on the pace as well, and um, so they left them in very good shape. And so Benetton were always um, um, there or thereabouts in terms of speed. But as I said earlier, um, Rory Byrne um, didn't always recognise what was needed in terms of reliability, and that was the thing that let them down. And they also had a, a series of different engines, so they never really had the same engine twice. So eighty six was the BMW Turbo. Uh, it was a customer turbo from um, uh, Maida. was Heine Maida's uh, tuning company. had supplied that engine to them. Then they did the deal with Ford for 87, and they had the turbo engine, which had been in the, the Haas the year before, and that was a good engine. Um, and they all wanted to keep that, but Cosworth decided, and Ford between them, decided they wanted to move to a normally aspirated engine for 88 because the turbo era was coming to an end. Um, uh, so, and then uh, 89, there was an, uh, a, a, a new Cosworth engine. So again, it was, it was never, um, there was no, there was little stability there in terms mm. of, uh, engine supply. And I think that was a, that was a key part of the story as well. It's worth noting though, isn't it? That Benetton were not like, for example, Red Bull in, in their early years where they were their own sole sponsor, although they came into motorsport, um, to promote the Benetton brand, they always had mm. external sponsors, didn't they? They did. They um, they didn't put and they didn't have the funds, I think, to put in enough to to just leave it as as Benetton alone. You know, and it was becoming Formula One was becoming more and more expensive in the eighties. Um, and I think the reason why they brought in Flavio Briatore. Um, in 1989 was for that reason alone, basically to find more money, to find more finance to support the F1 team. And that's why it was always a bit of a patchwork car in terms of sponsors. Um, could say that, yeah. It was absolutely, yeah. And the, the, um, it was quite funny. I talked to Peter Stevens, um, obviously revered designer and um, who's, who's great on liveries and, and did some of the great racing car liveries, including the, the Parmalat Brabham's, of course. Um, and he ended up being pulled in in 98 uh, after Briatore had left the team. And David Richards, his friend David Richards, had joined as the team boss. And David brought him in to have a look at the, the car uh, from a livery point of view. And he tidied it up. The 98 Benetton, if you look at the livery for that one, is much cleaner. Um, but to be fair to Briatore, he was brilliant at bringing in those sponsors. And he was brilliant at bringing in that, that money. And um, there's a very funny story in the book I tell, um, which Pat Simmons told me, that um, when the Mile 7 deal was done, um, Briatore had no interest in getting involved in the negotiations. But at the end of the negotiations, being a Japanese company, they wanted to meet the boss. They wanted to meet Briatore. So he, he was forced to go to Japan to mile seven to do the to do the final deal and he he, he slumped in the corner showing no interest at all in what in, the, in this final meeting until right at the end he suddenly said basically to the japanese guys he said right you guys like a bet and uh you know japanese people apparently have a reputation for enjoying uh, enjoying a, a flutter and uh they said yes yes we do he said okay well here's the bet uh we win the world championship you double our sponsorship and they loved it they shook hands on it 
And of course, that was 1994. Michael Schumacher won the championship. And they got the double above double the amount for ninety five. You know, isn't that's that what, a fabulous story. It is a great story, isn't it? And that's that's yeah. what Briatore brought brought to the team. He had that arrogance, that um, devil may care attitude, uh, which rubbed an awful lot of people up the wrong way. And, you know, he came in, he didn't know anything about Formula One, he didn't know anything about motor racing, but he, I think he's one of the most um, intelligent guys who ever worked in Formula One because he he learned and he also worked out how to employ the best people in the right roles. And when things didn't work and things went wrong, he 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 faced up to those mistakes and and found the best way to correct them. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I, I think we have to be careful. Obviously, we, we no one condones what happened later um, with the, the Singapore um, crash gate in 2009, 2008, 2009. Uh, but um, in terms of his effect on the team and how his approach to, to, to team management again most of the people i spoke to a little bit like rory Byrne, didn't really have a bad word to say about him which is quite surprising and of course flavio briatore was the man who did the deal to get get michael schumacher in the first place and you talk about that in the book yes uh, between briatore and tom walkinshaw um um it, it's an interesting period because um you know briatore shook up the team when he came in and he quickly signed John Barnard. Um, and that was, that was a key, a key point that, that, that 18 month period when they, he signed Barnard because um, Pat Simmons, Roy Byrne, they left the team because they couldn't work with John. Um, uh, that didn't work out again. Um, Briatore reacted quickly and he hired, uh, he did a deal, an alliance basically with Walkinshaw, which then brought Ross Braun into the team. And, um, uh, that that period then also brought in Schumacher when uh, basically Walkinshaw and Briatore between them uh, swooped in on, on Eddie Jordan's driver after that amazing Spa race in uh, in 91 when Michael had come in and qualified seventh on his debut. Um, and there was an awful lot of kerfuffle about that at the time. I remember uh, reading about it at the time and how how um, upset a lot of people were by, the, by Benetton's aggression uh, in terms of signing this guy. But to be fair, I, I just think that Walkinshaw and Briatore between them were doing the doing their job. They were getting this drive. They realised that he was a, uh, how good he was, and he proved it straight away, didn't he? Because he was scoring points um, as soon as he got into the Benetton and had a, a, you know, a good run right at the end of '91. And I, I completely agree with you that they were doing their jobs. That's what they were paid for. And I think, in some ways, I'd be interested to know your your view. But in some ways. That was a kind of watershed in Formula One between nice guys finish first and nice guys don't finish first. Yeah, I think there was a, there was a ruthlessness about Benetton that um, was always there. It's another sort of running theme um, where they would um, they would do anything to win, and that's that's one of the controversial points about this team is how far did they push it? You know, and there's always that that shadow that hangs over. 1994 and whether they were running an illegal car as Ayrton Senna was convinced they were. Um, and um, I knew that chapter was going to be a key, a key point of the book. And it was, it was certainly the, the toughest chapter to, to chat, to, to, to tackle. Um, but um, yes, these, these guys, um, they upset the establishment and they, you know, um, I, I, at one point I call them the noisy neighbors using the Alex Ferguson phrase that he used. <laughs> Manchester City. It's a bit, it's a bit like that where they, you know, they, they, you know, Frank Williams realised early on, I think, that this this team was going to be a threat. Um, 
Ron Dennis never really liked like them for that reason. Um, and uh, now, particularly now, I think with with a lot of hindsight, I find that quite endearing. Yes, I think the world's moved on, hasn't it? But mm. um, nineteen ninety four, yeah, okay, we can't we can't have the conversation without talking about nineteen ninety four. What, Damien? What's what's your take on it? So I was a I was a, a, a young journalist coming into the sport at the time, and I remember speaking to colleagues who were deeply involved in Formula One at the time, and there was there was essentially an, an assumption of guilt. Everyone in, in Formula One, in the paddock, uh, in the media, they assumed that um, Benetton were uh, playing fast and loose with the, with the regulations. That first year after the the active period when it went back to passive suspension and getting rid of the so-called gizmos and the driver aids. Um, and you know, Benetton were found mid-season to have software that suggested um, they were using track control. But they were never actually charged. Nothing was ever proven. Um, and it, it never got anywhere near um, an FIA tribunal or court or, or um, they were never they were never thrown out of a race for using it. Um but there was a, there was a smoking gun of this option thirteen, this menu that was basically not on the the front page of the um, uh, of the of the of the computer menu. It was, it was um, uh, on the second page, and basically it was the means of activating um, uh, um, a form of, of traction control. That was the mm-hmm. that was the insinuation, um, and it's all I could do approaching this was I knew that. No one at the team was going to tell me and suddenly say, you know, yes, the game's up all these years later. I'm going to admit it. <laughs> um, so I just tried to present what we knew about what happened at the time. And then I asked um, the people that I spoke to involved in the team to give me their version of events. And that's that's really all I could do was to, was to present that. And, um, you know, uh, I, ca- I tried to approach it with an open mind and um, and I just reported what they told me and um my feeling now is i don't know i really don't know i, I, <laughs> I um all i can do is you know pat simmons looked me straight in the eye i get on very well with pat i've known him uh, a number of years now and he was really helpful to me with, with making this book with the, the whole researching and the uh the interviews he gave me a lot of time sick i had six hours with him in over two sessions um wow. the whole the whole period of, of time um and I, I was in his kitchen, sat with him over a cup of tea, um, going through the, the, the 90s. And we got to 94, and I had to ask the question. And, you know, and he knew it was coming, and he knew he had to answer it. He's answered it many times before and will answer it many times again in the future. And he's just adamant that they, they, were, they were clever, but they weren't illegal. And I think that's the way about Formula One is they've, there's, there's ways, uh, uh, you know, um, there's, there's different ways to skin a cat in Formula One. And um, he's adamant that that was just a good car, that it was very good on traction, that the way it was designed meant that um, it had a rearward um, uh, weight bias um, compared to some of their rival teams, which was a, a, a Rory Byrne theme through, through, through his cars, and that they just nailed that car. Um, and they started early on it, earlier than usual. Benetton were usually late with their cars, but that season, because of the regulation change, they'd started in June 93, and they were ahead of the game. 
and they and they they had a, a very drivable engine in the Ford V8. It wasn't the most powerful. The Renault V10 was a, was a superior engine, but they had a good engine that worked well with that car. And um, and they had Michael Schumacher, and it all yeah. came together at the start of that year. Um, but they'll never get away from that that shadow. And it's um, you know, and I, I couldn't resolve it either. I'm afraid, which is. Um, no, I don't think anybody ever will. And and somebody who uh, who was a very successful team manager at Le Mans once said to me, "It's only illegal if you get caught." Yeah, exactly. It's yes. probably true. That's it. You're, you're listening to Damien Smith on the Historic Racing News Radio Show with me, Paul Tarsi, and we're talking about Damien's new book entitled "Benetton: Rebels of Formula One." Now. We can't talk about those times, Damien, without talking about those clashes between Michael Schumacher and other competitors. And by other competitors, I probably mean more than anybody else, Damon Hill. Um, What's your take on that? Yeah, I think every top-line driver who's come through, basically since Ayrton Senna, they've they've changed the game in some way. Um, And Senna was utterly ruthless in his approach. Um, And Schumacher... Um, was also and you know he moved the game on in terms of fitness and in preparation and his dedication to his his craft um and everyone who worked with Michael Schumacher absolutely adored him they they all had you know not a bad word to say because he he was very personable he, he got to know the guys uh on his side of the garage very well he got to know everyone in the team he pulled everyone around him and we saw that later in his career at Ferrari. You know that team was formed around him, mm. um, and it wasn't it wasn't by uh, coincidence. You know that was that was the way he was, but it was quite a natural way of being. But in terms of the way he approached um, racing, I think he, um, there was a there was a chip in there in in, in somewhere in him that um, was slightly defective. I think that um, <laughs> he he didn't have a didn't have a line, and so when um, he would do whatever it, need, it needed to be done. So I think I think the, the thing with Adelaide '94 and you know knocking Damon Hill out, um, Sh- Schumacher would have known at that stage um, he, his car wasn't going to go any further. You know he knew he'd gone off on his own, damaged his own car, and then when Damon went for the gap, Damon was too far back to realise how damaged Michael's car had been in his, his own um, collision with the wall. Went for the gap, and I think it was it was almost like some sort of pure instinct in Michael that he did what he had to do, which was mm. to turn in on Damon. And then mm. the result was as we, as we all know. Um, yeah. And I, I just think there was, it, it's a flaw in him that I think uh, all these years later, we saw it again, obviously with, with Villeneuve in 97, we saw it at Raskas in 2006 when he parked and, you know, uh, parked his Ferrari to yeah. stop Alonso taking pole position. Um it's why a lot of people will never see him as the true great that in terms of talent he was. Um, but he, he, he had this, um, yeah, this, this missing element of some ethical elements that we, we all, um, we all look for in our, our heroes. And, yeah, um, and, and it's, it's interesting, isn't it? That it goes back to what you were saying just a few minutes ago of man of his time. And, that you can't you can't unpick that you can't put the genie back in the bottle. No, Michael won again in '95, mm. um, and it was never quite the same again, was it? No, I mean '95 was an interesting season for the the team because there was a lot of um, 
deflation after 94. Um, both Pat Simmons and Rory Byrne told me that they, you know, they wanted to walk away from the sport at that stage. They were so disenchanted given the, the trauma that they went through um, and the, 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 the drama they went through um, in, you know, in the wake of, you know, Ayrton Senna's death and then the, the string of controversies that followed that team through 94. It was an exhausting season for everyone involved. Um, and 95, what the reason that they, you know, the Pat changed his mind and came back and that Rory pushed on was they wanted to win it and show they could do it basically um, clean, if you like, um, mm. and, and, and just sort of prove their critics wrong, I think. And it was a much more straightforward season in terms of Clearly, performance-wise, Schumacher was uh, head and shoulders, I think, ahead of everyone else at that time. Um, and his relationship with Damon Hill was was very tricky at that time. I think there was basically... I think Schumacher lacked uh, an element of respect for Hill. Um, Hill, being the, the, the guy that we all know he is, he was very honest about Schumacher. He knew how good Schumacher was. Um, and he was very honest about his own... Um, flaws, and unfortunately, a lot of them came out that year when he he had a you know a number of collisions with Schumacher, Silverstone, and, and Monza, uh, and it was a very um, difficult year for for Hill in in a, in a Williams that by the end of the year was was you know quicker than the Benetton. Benetton started off, I think, mm-hmm. and, and that's actually a season where I I would, I would say overall the Williams probably shaded the Benetton, which makes it make more impressive that they won the constructors' championship that year. And yes, yes, right. indeed. Yes. Um, what, what do you what do you think the, the Benetton legacy is? I think Benetton's legacy is um, kind of uh, clearing the way for what we see today. Really, in in, in many ways, they paved paved the way for Red Bull in in, in many ways. And I, I kind of drew that conclusion at the end of the book when I was talking to Alessandro Benetton that um, you know this was a, a company with no involvement in motor racing who came into the sport and were kind of dismissed as a you know, Red Bull are dismissed as a fizzy drinks company, Benetton as a, a woolly jumper company. Um, <laughs> they went their own way. They, they employed the right people uh, at the right time um, and they beat the establishment. And that's what Red Bull have done. And I, and I think in a way um, they represented the start of a new era uh, for Formula One um, for better and for worse, I would say. Um, and that's why they're, they're always going to be a, a company that's got a, a checkered history, I think, in terms of uh, their, how they're remembered in Formula One. Um, but they were successful and they brought colour, they brought um, life and energy um, and they brought some humour. Uh, and I think uh, the contribution they made to the sport was immense, actually, and, and is a little bit undervalued, um, which is part of the reason why I wrote the book. I couldn't agree more. I think that um, having having read the book, and I, I I did the thing of couldn't put it down, but I I picked it up and read it and kept on reading it until I got to the end because I thought oh, it was great. so good. Um, and and those those emotions that you just talked about came through loud and clear. That yes, they did they did change Formula One. And um, some people would say for the better, some people wouldn't. But nonetheless, they changed it and brought it perhaps more up to date than it had been. But they but, also um, they also had a lot of good people working at the team who are now still in Formula One in, in various roles at different teams and within the organisation of Formula One um, who came through the Benetton School, if you like. And and, and Joanne Villadel Pratt, their team manager, 
through the 90s he's extremely proud of that and that's one of the another point that was made that um it was a, it was a great place to learn the, the the craft of formula one brilliant damien thank you very much indeed for your time before i let you go um i'm going to take this opportunity to announce that you're going to be one of my guests on the historic racing news live stage at race retro um playing our our game show of uh, corridors of power so uh, we're going to have some fun with that. And that's at the Stonely Exhibition Centre from the 23rd to the 25th of Feb. So you'll be on for, for one of those days. And we're going to have some fun with that as well, Damien, I hope. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. That sounds like it will be a, a lot of fun. And to, to, to do it live uh, in, in front of an audience um, uh, won't be nerve-wracking at all. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be good, it'll be good, to, good to be there. Now, the book's available from Evro Publishing at evropublishing.com. Costs £60, which is money well spent. Comes with a solid recommendation from me. Damien, thank you for coming in and talking to us about um, about the book and about the history of, of, the, of the team. And thank you for joining us on the Historic Racing News radio show. Thanks for having me, Paul. You're listening to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Paul Judd talks about some of the things that are happening in the next few weeks. I know that there's one event that Paul has been looking at very closely, um, and that's Race Retro. Uh, let, let's call it Reese Race Retro to give it its proper its proper title. And uh, you just got to love anything where they get the, the letters all in a row. I've forgotten the proper word. There is a proper word, isn't there? which is a journalist I really ought to have remembered because it always makes great headlines. Alliteration. Oh, it's alliteration, alliteration, isn't it? That's yes. the one. So, yeah, Reese Race Retro. Sounds like a little tongue twister. But, yeah, I've always had a big soft spot for this show, particularly now because, in fact, this year, and it's going to be held at Stonely in Warwickshire, and it's running from the 23rd to the 25th of February, which is the 20th running of the show. But, of course, the first show was actually back in 2003, and they lost two whole years of the show due to covid and it must have been so hard you work all those years building up the momentum getting your regulars in building up your family and you don't run for two years and you're almost got to start again so hats off to everyone behind the show for getting it to where they've got it but uh yeah obviously you know a favorite of mine but also a big soft spot this year and i know you're going to talk about this a bit later paul so hopefully i'm not stealing your thunder here but of course <laughs> on the stage and they have a whole variety of guests and uh dragging well i think hopefully not dragging the standard down too much of course we are going to be on there live doing our corridors of power routine every day so if you are there please do keep keep an eye out for the timetable when we will be up on stage and uh, yeah come and say hello but uh yeah there's a few changes for this year there's been some building works on the sites so they've actually got an extra hall that they can use so it's uh They've got their dedicated, they're saying a dedicated and enlarged indoor auto jump. But I always love the auto jump because you'd start off in that main hall, which is always nicely fitted out, move across the hall. And then you ended up in a glorified cow shed with people <laughs> trying to sell you headlines for a Triumph Herald. And <laughs> you may mock, I suspect they were there, but, sure. but you just never knew what you were going to stumble across. There was once that one year we were there. And it was a guy trying to sell, well, not trying to sell. I'd happily bought one if I'd had a way to get it home. Parts of a vampire jet, you know, an RAF fighter from the early 50s. He had the booms. It was a twin boom jet. And I was looking at this thing and thinking, if only my my lounge was less, was able to take in a 15-foot boom and the tailplane. I loved it, frankly. But you just never know what you're going to stumble across there. So it's absolutely superb. So they've got that. 
they've got extra hall space all the way around basically so uh, they've also got the auction iconic auctioneers who are in there and it's always worth a wander around there some fantastic cars on, on play. and i always just find it fascinating just sitting in the in the audience there, just watching what's going on and uh, so so much basically they're talking about 200 exhibitors and traders including uh, our friends at equip classic racing got a stand 750 motor club classic toy car racing club should be there's so many club suppliers memorabilia stands of all sorts of course you know the booksellers where i always end up spending my cash the auto jump but then their live rally action with running with group b stage so there's some fantastic rally cars actually in action if you are a competitor you can get your race license medical done and i've seen quite a bit on facebook actually with people having issues trying to find someone to do that so you can get that done while you're there obviously the legends on the live stage you can have a passenger ride in a rally car uh historic karting on saturday and sunday and you just basically just thoroughly enjoy the place it is actually a fantastic venue to get to it's a very strange venue isn't it because it's, it's a am i right it's an agricultural center the rest of the year yeah, it was it was built as the home of the Royal Agricultural Show, and that that's why it's got so many really strange buildings. Because although the show only lasted for a week, I think it was every year that it was worthwhile because every farmer in the country went there, and it was worthwhile every, for every farmer to- and his dog. <laughs> One man and his dog. That was what, so. Uh, that's what I was thinking of. Yes, uh, and that they would. They would go, and so it was worth NatWest Bank building a building, and they're they're all still there. So it's uh, it's an interesting one, but it's it's going to be fun, and uh, it's very much aimed, aimed at the clubman, isn't it? I th- I think so, yeah. Which 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 is actually you know the vast majority of everyone who competes in this country, isn't it? I think the top end of all motorsport always steals all the thunder, but. You know, you go and look at what's on on any particular day, be it or you know in, in the woods rallying, be it at club level motorsport. There are an awful lot of people out there competing at every level, and you know this is the place for them to go. And as you say, Paul, we will uh, we will be there in force. Um, you, uh, me, Jim Roller, ir- irreverent and raucous. Um, I hope. <laughs> so uh, come and say hello, and um, thank you for that insight, Paul. And finally, let's have our usual monthly review of our Facebook page. The Historic Racing News Facebook page is seen by up to a million people every month. And there are some great news stories, plus a look back at days gone by and some of the lighthearted pieces as well. So, Joe Bradley, what caught your eye in the last few weeks? Um well, my one of my childhood idols, Jack Yicks, turned 79. Incredible to think that was possible. We had uh, some lovely pictures on our Facebook page of some of the cars he drove. The Ferrari 312B was uh, the, my, one of my favourites back in the early 70s. Um, we lost Jill DeFerrin, didn't we? Um, which we featured yeah. when that news hit, which was really sad. But the one that really caught my eye was a piece that went out on the on Christmas Eve, morning of Christmas Eve, and it was the uh, the pictures from the 1971 Daytona 24 Hours of the Penske Ferrari 512, oh, yeah. and it was kind of the before and after pictures. And the after, if the, if anything epitomizes the torture of a 24-hour race. It's endurance <laughs> it's, racing. Yeah, and, and the use of gaffer tape 
the <clears throat> moderate use of gaffer tape to get that car to the end uh, is phenomenal. When you, if you haven't seen it, 24th of December, um, have a look. The car is immaculate as all of Penske's car start races in, in that state, but the way that it finished the race. And it was, and of course, that wasn't a, an instant uh, creation. That was an evolution across the race, wasn't it? <laughs> With every pit yes. stop, that those repairs evolved, and that was right up my strass. And our friend Alistair Douglas, who I've just been told I'll be working with at the uh, Donington Historic Festival in May. Uh, but I think it's a bit, is it the first weekend of May? Uh, he mentioned that it was um, driven by our very own David Hobbs, who shared the car with Mark Donahue, and Hobbo called the once pristine car the tank tape special. That was from <laughs> Alistair Douglas. Thanks, Alistair, for that. And uh, yeah, I, I think it, it was all the more poignant perhaps that 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 car particularly that car of all the Penske cars was so immaculate it was so perfect and that it was it ended up in such a mess and it was it was incredible to see and uh, and that people talk about that as the American Ferrari it was very much the American Ferrari not just owned and entered but also that uh, Traco Built the built the engine. Um, they took it apart as it came out of, of Italy and and rebuilt it. Better known, of course, for their Chevrolet V8s. Um, that Penske rebuilt the car, so it was very very heavily reworked. Came to the grid immaculate. Ended up like uh, like as as you say the tank tape special. So yeah, thank you, thank you for that, Joe. That's uh, that's a, a good one. And can Jim, can I, I just confirm? Can I just confirm, Donington Historic Festival is actually the 4th to the 5th of May this year, and we do have our calendar of events on our Historic Racing News website. Thank you for that, Paul, and thank you for all your efforts with that as well. I know you you work long and hard at that. Um, Jim, I know you're a big fan of Facebook and uh, that you enjoy anything on Facebook that features either dogs or old racing cars. Uh, <laughs> true, true fact. <laughs> I thought it was bears. Um, bears too. <laughs> bears, yeah. Um, leaving the dogs to one side, if we may, for a while. Um, what did you see on the Historic Racing News Facebook page that made you smile? Well, I had three. Um, one didn't make me smile, but I had three things that I was looking forward to talking about. And one of them was, in fact, what we just talked about, those before and after pictures um, of the 71 Penske Ferrari at Daytona is sums up endurance racing uh, in, in two photos, e even to this day, endurance racing uh, in, in those two photos. I thought that was uh, brilliant. The, the story that made me smile was something we touched on uh, late last year and is finally now start to come to fruition. And that is the movement of the old shed. So yeah. the tarot building is on the move and uh, we had the pictures to, to document the scaffolding is up around. It's going to be dismantled and then reconstructed over uh, at the somewhere on the Goodwood property. And I'm very much looking forward to, to that. When that happens, that might even require a special trip over just to, to see the grand opening of that <laughs> when that happens. I am. 
I'm sure. The other one was was a little bit sadder, and that was uh, our remembrance of of someone I know who's near and dear to your heart, Paul, and that is uh, Donald Campbell, who uh, died at, on January 4th in 1967. The whole Campbell fact, family is is a, a big part of uh, of your love of of motorsport. Uh, he was, uh, of course. Uh, uh, killed while making an attempt on the world water speed record. Um, but the Bluebird uh, name and the Bluebird vehicles, whether they be on land or on water, um, are true icons of, of motoring history. And uh, I thought that was a, a fitting tribute that we had. And then finally, uh, the one that really did make me smile was uh, on New Year's Eve. And that was, um, despite being um, in the uh, uh, floating on the waters of, of of U.S. Virgin Islands, I was able to, to check <laughs> Facebook occasionally, and the one of how people get to their got their vehicles to the racetrack back in the day was oh, just yes. outstanding, just outstanding. Yeah, that and was some of them. Up. Yeah, and some of them looking uh, a little bit uh, less than showroom condition. <laughs> yes. When they were on their way home, I, I thought that was, uh, I thought that was particularly. There's great. a wonderful picture there of of a Lotus Eleven on a trailer behind an MGB outside a yes. Woolworth store, and there yes. is just so much yes. to zoom in and look at it just in one there's picture. A, that, that there's a whole tableau there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you're 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 very right there, Jim. That it's uh, it, it just t- tells an awful lot of stories, doesn't it? And it's it's a, a great one. So, what if, what did uh, what appealed to you? Uh, well, quite a few things there. I mean, the uh, the Campbell thing certainly. The uh, definitely the woodshed. I thought the Tyrrell thing was long, long overdue, and good to see that going to uh, such a rightful place as Goodwood. Uh, the the race a bit of the the Ferrari, fantastic as as Joe just said, and and Jim, the, you know, the, the very definition of endurance racing captured in two images and uh, can i can i uh, add one more yeah yeah it, not, was, it was from december 7th and it was uh, again being the video guy it's a little chunk of video that we posted from the 1967 canadian grand prix and it's graham hill the car has stalled He's in the uh, yes yes i saw that one pushing and the he car gets out started. Yes. and he pushes it jumps back in and bump starts it could you imagine the FIA? They <laughs> would go insane. They and Jim, you just, just remind me there. Bonkers. Sorry. Plus, it's pissing down rain. I mean, <laughs> absolutely there was, there was wonderful. One, there was one very important part I forgot to mention on the Harry King thing. A few, only, with, I think, 10 days later, um, Harry was back to his roots that he'd done with uh, the likes of Lando Norris and stuff in. Janetta Jr.'s coaching again. So never mind all this going to your head stuff. He was back at his roots coaching young, you know, fourteen-year-olds in Janetta's again, which I just thought was brilliant. PJ, what have uh, what's appealed to you? No, I, I just love this scrolling up and down our Facebook page because you know it's it's the comments <laughs> that do it, isn't it? Yeah. And there was a, a wonderful post up there actually. Post the um, Dubai Classic where Alan Prost and Nicholas Prost shared a Porsche 962, but it wasn't just any. Porsche 962. It was actually the black Alpha liveried car that had come third at Le Mans in 1990 with uh, David Sears, Tiffany Dell, and Anthony Reed. And as I recall, that was, I think, the first year with the chicanes on the straights. And they ran the short tail car 
and it turned out to be the way to go. And they got what would have originally been a very unfancied car onto the podium. And so there's some lovely pictures there, lovely pictures of Alain Prost with the car, etc., and with his son. And then the very first comment underneath is your friend of mine, John Kirkpatrick, saying, <laughs> uh, an all Jim Russell graduate car to the podium. He says, we didn't make them champions. We just pushed them in the right direction, which got six likes. So I was delighted to see John yes. Coming on it, copying in there and mentioning in there basically. And then there's some other comments about the weekend. And uh, Michael Skeet says it was great to see Alan racing. He also get, got behind the wheel of a Ferrari 643 at this event. And uh, there's a comment underneath saying that, and I think it's referring to the Ferrari, not the Porsche, but uh, the engine let go big time, just like the old days, says uh, Martin Angeloni. But uh, what is Prost doing in a Ferrari 643? Because, yes, he drove it in period. That's the car he called the truck that lost him his gig. He got fired by Ferrari for saying bad things about the car, if you remember. He actually left them before the end of the season. He left after the Japanese Grand Prix. And uh, I think it was Morbidelli stepped in for the Australian Grand Prix at the end of the season. So, you know, fantastic car because it's from that three and a half litre period when the the v12 just sounded absolutely magnificent but uh you know how did you coax prost back into a car that he absolutely loathed in period well, it's a bit that? like being invited out for dinner by an ex-girlfriend 20 years later isn't it you know that uh maybe she isn't quite as ugly then who knows rose tinted visor on the on the crash helmet then yeah where did this come from <laughs> for me um, my favourite of all of it was the video that uh, that we put on a on a YouTube link on our Facebook page, uh, which was a TV piece from a few years ago, which featured Sir Patrick Stewart meeting Sir Sterling Moss. Mm, and uh, yes. I haven't realised that Sir Patrick was a huge motorsport fan, and uh, and particularly a huge Sterling Moss fan, and he hosted this. This uh, this whole tribute to Sterling Moss. Obviously, it's a few years ago. Uh, he gets to meet Sterling in his Mayfair home, the one we all know that Sterling lived in before his sad demise. Uh, he talks in depth about the realities of racing in the fifties and sixties. Sterling's fateful Goodwood crash on St George's Day in nineteen sixty-two. Uh, he talks about his attitude to life since then and then glory of glories Stuart gets to drive a van wall round what's left of the Aintree circuit where Sterling became the first Brit to win the British Grand Prix in a British car um, the big thing is that Sir Patrick Stewart is very obviously chuffed to bits by being <laughs> in Sterling's presence he's especially when they get to drive earlier on in the show, they get to drive the Millimedia course in a Mercedes 300 SL double wing. And Sir Patrick being close to tears when he bids farewell to, to Moss at the end of the programme and the Star Trek star beams from the cockpit of the van wall and says, it beats the hell out of the Starship Enterprise. 
Werner <laughs> <laughs> um, Hola, James Kemp, Richard Harrison, John Arnold, Trevor Berry, James Wright, Simon Holder, uh, Mike Siegman, David Hartley, and many, many more people agree with me that, uh, that that is a great way to spend an hour and that it's, uh, it's all on the Historic Racing News Facebook page. So do go and have a look at that. Patrick Stewart. Uh, Patrick Stewart was actually the star of Star Trek: The Next Generation. These things really matter to some people. Thank you, Paul. That's, that's <laughs> a good point. I just want to stop the emails people. that were flooding in. <laughs> Fairy tales for grown-ups. Get over it. You're listening to the historic racing news radio show. <laughs> gentlemen that uh, you can follow all the news on the historic racing news facebook page please remember to take an active part let's have your comments and like the posts and follow our page don't forget that your special historic racing news discount is available now for race retro and let's just take a moment to talk about race retro because we are going to be there in the in force on the 23rd to the 25th of February, um, that all, all of us will be there at one time or another, except for Mr. Bradley, who's, uh, who's off playing with, uh, with his go-kart commitments. Can't say go-karts, Paul. Can you not? Is it kart? No. no. Kart. It's his kart. Go-kart yeah. is a brand. Yeah. Go-kart. Go kart has two little pedals that you push backwards yeah. and forwards. It's an American, it's an American brand in the 60s, 50s, actually. Wow. Right. Well, that's me putting them in place. Um, yeah. So yeah, karting. No, I won't. Sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> but don't forget, you can do that. And also, don't forget, with a, come and see us, please. We'd love to love you to see you because we will be doing corridors of power on stage live. And that we will we'll be doing that on all three days. So come and come and talk to us about that. We would I love. So to... I am so disappointed. I'm not going to be there with you, boys. You know. So away. Really? Uh, so away. Um, that we've we've got some great stuff, and we'll be bringing some more information about that. If you want your tickets um, for Race Retro, go to raceretro.com, and. That if you put in the um, the code HRN twenty four, you'll get a special discount, which is only available to listeners of Historic Racing News and uh, and viewers of our Facebook page. Um, this show is obviously available wherever you get your podcasts, and that is is uh, is available on all of those platforms on the first and third first and third Thursday of every month. And please, we would welcome all of your thoughts via Facebook. And as I say, don't forget to come and say hello at Race Retro 23rd, 25th of Feb. Thank you to the team, Jim Roller, Paul Jurd, Joe Bradley and Peter Snowden. A big, big thank you also to Damien Smith for that fascinating talk about Benetton. Um, don't forget, we'll be back 7th of Feb with a report from Retromobile uh, in, in Paris, and we'll have some more information uh, on the upcoming race retro then. Plus, of course, we'll be playing another game of Corridors of Power, 
when our subject for debate is my favorite motorsport story. So work on that one, boys. Um, also, we'll have the first edition of a, uh, of a series that we're going to be running throughout 2024, and that's Paul Jurd presenting first of his new features, which is PJ Investigates. And Paul, do you want to, uh, want to go public on what your first investigation is going to be? Yeah, my first investigation was actually triggered by something that I said in a recent pod about how I felt that uh, Alberto Ascari was almost like a forgotten great. So uh, we are going to dig deep into the life, the career and everything around Alberto Ascari, the, uh, the still the last Italian world champion. Is Can't this going to be like Mike Wallace showing up at your house uh, when you're a politician and 60 Minutes is there knocking on the door to investigate? <laughs> not, not quite, Jim, but uh, you know. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, my name is still Paul Tarsi, and as always, if you have been, thank you very much for listening. Proceeding was a copyrighted presentation of historic racing news in association with White Squirrel Studios. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or usage without the expressed written permission of historic racing news is strictly prohibited. This program is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.